Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It's September 23rd, 2020. And sometime in the last 48 hours, the American death toll passed that grim milestone of 200,000 deaths, uh, 200,000 somebodies. Uh, the president was saying almost at the same time that almost nobody is affected by this. But the reality is that is that's 200,000 human lives uh, that have been lost. And you wonder what the what the, the what the full uh, cost is, because each one of those uh, each one of those deaths also impacts a wider universe, uh, other other loved ones. And and yet there does seem to be that moment where you look around and is it registering with us? So uh, we, we we have a we have a special guest on today, uh, our good friend, uh, David French, who is out with a new book and uh, is, is annoying all the right people with his op ed pieces. So, David, thanks for, for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. There's a, I, I bring this up is and, and maybe I'm wrong and, and you can push back on this because I do think that we're a caring and empathetic country. And yet we do seem to have a little bit of empathy fatigue here. It, it does feel like we've been numb to it. That that the when we hit one thousand deaths, it was a banner headline in the Washington Post. Uh, this feels like it's a bump, two hundred thousand, and we're on track now to double that number in a few months. That that new projection says something like uh, three hundred and seventy-eight thousand Americans will die by January first. Has it become a statistic for us? Well, I think. In some in some quarters of the country, I do think it has become a statistic. It and, and it, I think it depends on directly on how impacted has your town been. This is one of these really odd. It's it's really been odd, and I think a symbol of a lot of our national dysfunction. How we responded to this, it's almost as if we've just atomized. And yeah. if if it isn't in our county, if it isn't really in our town, uh, I've you see a whole lot of people doubting whether it's anywhere at all, which is so uh, strange. But yeah, if you were in, say, New York, when the wave really hit, and you know, I, I live in Tennessee, a lot of friends in New York, and many of them describe just hearing the sirens at all hours of night, of the, of the day and night, as people were being rushed continually to the hospitals. And, and then the other thing is at the height of the lockdown, as the death toll, the daily death toll was at its worst, um, a lot of this was happening completely away from everybody's sight. So you couldn't go visit relatives in the hospital. Then when people died, there, was, there wasn't the availability to have sort of that community mourning moment where yeah. people would gather at the funerals. And so in a lot of ways, this was a death toll that was taking place outside of the normal community rituals of mourning which in many ways separated people from the event. I mean, in, in, in some ways, it's the exact opposite of when soldiers die overseas. And when they come home, there is a community, there is a, a true community outpouring and mourning, uh, you know, expressions of gratitude for the family. And, and so it really brings home the cost. Here, you had the complete opposite. You had people dying and all of it locked away from us and not even an ability to mourn. And, and I think to some extent there is such a thing as out of sight, out of mind. You know, that this, this really does explain how we are really not all in this together. It, it, it does feel that, uh, it, it does, it does feel like, you know, the, the experience has been so dramatically different. I was actually talking with a young relative yesterday who was describing this as his nine 11 in his life. He actually, he and his, and his fiance live in, live in New York city. And so for them, this impacted their life more than any other major event. And yet for much of the country, it happened elsewhere. And, I'm sitting here looking at a picture of uh, the president's big rally in Pennsylvania last last night. So at the moment when we are facing the the human toll um, that could be mitigated by masks and social distancing, it's almost like, it's like part of the country is treating this like it's a joke, and yeah. that it, that it's that it's that it is, and and they can do that because, as you point out, it, it is someplace else happening to some other people, and in many ways invisible. Yeah. It, and, you know, a lot of people are treating it as if it is something that can be just simply defied and yeah. it, it will be OK. And, you know, you've seen that you saw some of this break out in the, um, you know, in the real, really credibility damaging sort of 
uh, ideological response from some public health officials to mass gatherings in the face of, um, you know, to, to protest racial injustice and police brutality. I mean, the virus doesn't care about any of this stuff. And, and look, you know, you can say, I understand that people are going to protest. I mean, I, I think there's no public health officials that could have hold, held back that wave of protest any more than anyone could have held back a tsunami. But don't light your credibility on fire by saying, well, this one's okay. And, you know, this, this one's okay. And we just have, you can just go down the line and find an ideological response time and time and time again. And I'm not talking about good faith disagreements over how to respond to a novel coronavirus. I mean, that's, that's going to be inevitable. I'm, what I'm talking about are these highly ideological, highly partisan responses to a virus that doesn't care about any of this stuff. Um, and, and there, you know, I remember in here in Tennessee, we had sort of phase one uh, with the lockdown, which we handled really well, honestly. There was a time where Tennessee was in the top 10 per capita in testing and the bottom 10 per capita in deaths per million, which those two things are related. A lot of sure. testing helps. And then, you know, the lockdowns eased up and a lot of people just treated it as if the virus had somehow like surrendered on the deck of the USS Missouri <laughs> and yeah. went right back out. And then next thing you know, we got hit harder than we'd been hit ever at any point. And, and I think that's one of the things that uh, is just been so dispiriting is that breakdown in civil society, this sort of idea that, as you're saying it, we're all in, in this together and the idea, the turning things like masking, like what, what on earth is, how is masking a partisan issue? Yet it became part of the culture war. And now we're seeing decreasing confidence in a vaccine, you know, and I remember saying the mask culture war is the dumbest culture war I have seen in my life until the vaccine culture war comes. Right. And and that's going to have a long term implication. So this is actually a, a good segue into your book, which yeah. is about the divisions that, that we are divided on everything. And I do think that historians and sociologists are going to really puzzle over what was going on in 2020 over the mask, how the mask became the signal of of tribal loyalty. And uh, I really haunted by that. You've seen the video of the lieutenant governor of Ohio who's a Republican and he's, uh, he's speaking to a Trumpist crowd and he's basically trying to get them to wear, you know, tr Trump merchandised masks into a grocery store. And the moment he mentions the masks, he gets he gets booed down. I mean, this yeah. crowd is booing him. And, yeah. and he's, he's like, he's like, hey, I, I, I get it. But I mean, he's you, you can't even convince people to wear the Trump mask. So your book is entitled Divided We Fall. And it does come out at a moment where things do seem like they're spiraling out of control. And I, I, I generally am one of those people that go, OK, it, it's not that bad. But here's here's your subtext, your, your subtitle. And, and this is where I want to start. OK, America's secession threat. And how to restore our nation. And I want to go, David, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 wait, 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 before yeah. we get any further. America's secession threat? There is a threat of secession? What what well, are, what are you talking about? Yeah. So um <laughs> I essentially this is something know, I need to know about. I mean <laughs> well, no, it's not like imminent. It's not like, you know, you've seen some sort of declaration from a coalition of states that uh do what we want to relieve. No, what I'm saying is we've had a lot of, we have had a lot of very uh, powerful books, essays, speeches, um, explaining division in this country from every particular, from every angle. And one thing that you conclude when you look at the social science, when you just w live and work in this world is that there's no single important cultural, religious, political, or social phenomenon or social, you know, social reality that is pulling Americans together more than it's pushing us apart. Hmm. Um, geographically, we're sorting into through the big sort that's been going on. I didn't coin that term. That comes from a 2009 book from Bill Bishop. Geographically, we're sorting into like-minded communities. When you sort into like-minded communities, um, there's a something called a law of group polarization that takes place. That's a coin a, a term from Cass Sunstein going all the way back into the 1990s that says when like-minded people gather, we tend to grow, we grow more extreme. 
Uh, and in fact, when you see American ideological, you know, uh, examinations of American ideological beliefs, this old bell curve that used to be this big middle with the small extremes is flattening. We're getting more and more, we're pushing more and more to the edges. And this is a bipartisan phenomenon. And then when you cluster and when you go up more extreme, you often even lose the ability to talk to each other. And so one of the things that, uh, you know, I went back and I looked at the, some of the causes and realities in 1776 and 1861, and you begin to see a lot of the same things. You see geographic clustering. Uh, it's not like we're just, you know, clustering at random places around the country. Um, the, Pacific North, the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast are blue, blue, blue. I mean, huge sections of the South and Midwest are very, very red. Uh, the Northeast is very, very blue. I mean, these are you. You actually use a, a, a phrase that I thought was was really rather um, startling, which is that we're become very ex efficient at creating the term you use was super clusters yeah. of like minded citizens. These super clusters, and you're right. So, I mean, let me see some of these numbers here that you you cited. White evangelicals delivered eighty one percent of their votes to Donald Trump. Manhattan. Uh, if, speaking of a supercluster, gave 87% of its vote to Hillary Clinton. She won 91% yeah. of the vote in Washington, D.C., 84% of the vote in San Francisco. So yeah. well, these 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 superclusters are like these massive bubbles. And then you layer on top of that social media and you yeah. are you are getting these this massive centrifugal force. Yeah. And, and the other thing is when you lay, and it's not just politics. So you can layer over that community differences in religion, differences in culture, everything from what you watch on television to where you've got these very separate cultural, religious, and political enclaves. And, and, you know, it'd be all okay if we didn't also hate each other, <laughs> you know? So, you know, the data shows that we're increasingly dehumanizing. So the vast majority of your average partisan Republicans and your average partisan Democrats doesn't just disagree. They have affirmative dislike for people on the other side. This is the negative polarization you hear a lot about from a lot of different sources. And Charlie, that brings us back to the masks. Why would the mask be an issue? Because uh, Rod Dreher said it very well in a, a piece he wrote a couple of months ago. It became a condensed symbol, sort of a a, a very small symbol of a, of a larger thing. And that larger thing was contempt for the technocratic elite class that was proposing masking. And so it wasn't that there was anything particular against the mask. It was that there was something against the people who were advocating for the mask. And so this is how you signaled your defiance, your cultural, your political defiance. And it's become kind of a cultural marker in parts of this country where you can walk into a room and almost immediately know the politics by whether people are wearing a mask, which again, that shows you how deeply this is wormed into people's minds and hearts. So we know that we're a country divided by religion, divided by politics and ideology, even by the kind of cars we, we drive and the beers we, we drink, that we're divided between red states and blue states, but you use the word secession. So I guess yeah. the question that I'm getting at is, you know, at what point do we actually start to have to confront the possibility that we no longer think of ourselves as Americans, that we think of ourselves as red state, blue state individuals, and we start to actually break apart? Well, my, my what I have in the book is so I have a three sections. Section one is here's why we're divided and it's not going to get better. Uh, and section two is how we could break apart. I have two scenarios in there, a Cal exit scenario and a Texit scenario. And he, here's the way I look at it, Charlie. I'm not saying that this is imminent, but what I'm saying is the conditions are being created to where blundering, foolish people could create crises that could strain or even break our bonds. And, uh, you know, look at it this way, like with every passing year that enmity grows, that hatreds and conspiracy theories and geographic separations and cultural separations and religious differences grow, look at it as... There is more kindling being put on a bonfire. Right. It's not lit, but more kindling is put there, sort of more kerosene is put on it and awaits a match. It awaits a spark. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I'll be honest with you, I, I have been really alarmed with um, our partisan polarization for a while, but I was really nervous about writing something that used that word secession. Mm -hmm. 
I really was because, you know, uh, the reaction, even if some of you know, my editors that I work for and, and work with on publications are like, aren't you alarmist? And isn't your whole sort of thing? You don't be like flight 93. Um, and then, you know, as we began to see <clears throat> the events of this summer unfold, uh, people were writing back to me going, oh, I see what you're I'm seeing all of these dynamics. So this was actually something I was wondering. Um, when did you start writing this book? At, at what point did you say, I, I want to write about, you know, the, you know, the splitting apart of, of America, the, the divisions? Was this last year? No, I, so I started writing last year. Okay. Um, and so it's gotten so I started much getting worse. worried earlier. Okay. No, I know we've all, we've been, we've been worried, but I'm, but I'm, as as you've gotten closer to publication, it seems like things that have happened this summer make it more urgent, yeah. ma make, make it feel less out there alarmist. I mean, we're seeing on a daily basis the 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 radicalization on the right and on the left, you know, with the Supreme Court, which we'll get to in, in a few moments that you see the the Overton window of what people are willing to do. Um, shifting in real time right in front of us. So you're talking about the kindling being being laid and then the kerosene is being uh, poured. W what is the spark that you fear that would say? Well, you know, I'll say oh, there's there's a spark that I don't necessarily think could lead to secession, but could lead to a real constitutional crisis that could lay the groundwork. And you can see it happening in front of our eyes right now. Yeah. Um, and and that is a legitimacy crisis as a result of a very close election. Somebody um and one of our uh, uh, dispatch podcasts uh, uh, or question was asked of Steve Hayes uh, said, "What do you want to see out of this election?" And he had a great answer right away. He said, "Clarity." Yeah, um, it's a good answer because in the absence of that, we could face a real challenge. Because imagine here's the the easiest to imagine scenario because of negative polarization. This phenomenon we talked about, whether you're Republican or a Democrat, you have a totally different view of mail-in ballots and whether or not you should use mail-in ballots and whether or not the counting mail-in ballots is valid. And if Trump is winning in-person voting and then in the days that follow, it's very clear that A, his lead is being chipped away from mail-in ballots, but B, an unacceptable percentage of those mail-in ballots is being disqualified. And let's suppose he hangs on by the skin of his teeth with a popular vote loss that's perhaps larger than the one he had in 2016, um, but a narrow electoral college victory and hmm. a few, a couple million disqualified mail-in ballots, you have a legitimacy crisis on your hands and you're going to see enormous pressure on blue state governors, um, especially with this very malicious and very cruel and very bumbling president um, you're going to see enormous pressure on blue state governors to resist federal authority um, when you've got a president who they would believe is illegitimate and who's entirely willing to label entire U.S. cities anarchy zones. So, yeah, we've already started seeing that. So I, you, you, you lay out this, this scenario where it's a close election. Um, the, you know, there's a surge in voter suppression claims. Uh, there's all kinds of, you know, in, in, you know, ballot controversies. It might be litigation. There might be states sending different, uh, different teams of, of electors. Uh, nobody wants to concede. Uh, you know, the president may not accept the outcome of all of it. And then you ask what happens then. I think the chances of that are close to 50-50 right now. So we're, we are not dealing with just something that, that, that is out there. So then the question becomes, how bad can it get? Because you, you have, you're familiar with it and you've written about it, that, that uh, the planning exercise, the scenario planning by yeah. the uh, Transition Integrity Project, which is bipartisan. And they ran these scenarios and, and, and frankly say in, in a lot of those scenarios that where you don't have clarity, one of the things that's going to happen is you will have street level violence and political crisis. And so yeah. we, we may be 40, 50 days away from a political crisis, but do you really think it will result in violence? What are the, what are the chances of that? But this is something I really worry about, but I want to get your, I mean, I, you have people with guns, people you know, in, in Kenosha. We've, we've, we've had the vigilantes. We've had the militias. Is this going to become a hot war? Well, you know, one of the things that I point out in the book is that as tense as we feel now, it wasn't, the violence isn't close to the where it was in 1968. 
um, people forget how violent 1968 was. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes two bombings a day, three bombings a day. I mean, when we have urban unrest now, you had absolute, you had actual like urban combat in the late 1960s. And here's what I say in the book. I say, we can't, our nation cannot endure that level of violence in 2020. If you take the 1968 level and you lay it over top of the 2020 uh, geography and culture and social media and et cetera, it would be hard for our nation to endure that. Um, because Why? in 1968, if there was a mail bomb in Des Moines and I'm growing up in Kentucky, I don't know about it. it you know, the Lexington Herald leader is not covering that. Um, hmm. But in t 2020, if there's a mail bomb in Des Moines, I know about it instantly, no matter where I am. I mean, heck. Charlie, we know when a kid's MAGA hat is knocked off his head in a Burger King somewhere, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so we have instant availability and access on video now to violence uh, and violent action, which gives people a dramatically heightened sense of the background level of violence in this country. And if it does increase to those 1960s levels, I really fear for what could happen and and, you know, we've been frankly pretty lucky so far that, that the death toll of these constant street battles in Portland has not been higher, that the death toll from the rioting and looting has not been higher. I don't know, you know if you remember this awful video, which could have been a history changing mass killing when this um, tractor trailer missed the signs closing the interstate and almost plowed yes, into a giant pile of protesters in yeah. Minneapolis. I mean, imagine, you know, we just, we escaped something horrible and awful by milliseconds as people dove out of the way. And, you know, this is the thing that when I talk about sort of a bonfire that hasn't been lit yet, and you're right on the election. I feel like a lot of us who are saying we need to get our act together on mail-in balloting, it's like you're on the deck of the Titanic and a whole bunch of people are yelling iceberg, 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 iceberg. And it's still time to alter course, but we're still headed towards it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there is time to alter course at this point. So in, in, in some ways, this critique of where we're at is the easy part of your book. Yeah. The hard part is, how do you fix it? Uh, how do you turn it around? Now, you come at this from a conservative point of view. Uh -huh. So what is the answer for all of this? You know, it, we're, we're not going to sit around the bonfire holding hands and singing <laughs> Kumbaya. We're not going to be getting over this. We are not going to be more united um, in early 2021. You're not going to have Republicans and Democrats singing God bless America on the on the steps of the Capitol. So how do we come back from this? Yeah, this this is hard. I mean, so step one is, I think you have an awareness of the severity of the problem. So, yes. you know, what we need are people in our political class and our cultural, you know, in the, in the sort of the cultural elite class who have these big public platforms and have big public um, presences prioritizing de-escalation. And we can, we have to stop assuming that every, that we can push and push and push with no greater consequence. And the only real consequence is, ha ha, the libs are owned or, you know, the Trumpists are humiliated or whatever, you know, sort of the, sh the very short term incentive is people have to realize our country is at risk through hatred. And so those of us who realize it should act accordingly. So that's, yeah, we one can't thing. take the nation for granted anymore. Right. If it's an interesting sea change in sort of how you see the world around you when you realize that the level of hatred is becoming its own threat. I mean, think about, again, going back to masks, the level of hatred for that sort of technocratic progressive elite has killed an unknown number of people in this country because of their refusal to mask out of loathing and contempt. I mean, that's, that's horrifying to think that that has actually happened. Um, so number one is, a, is an actual awareness that embeds mm -hmm. within you that there is a need to deescalate our tensions and our mutual hatred and enmity in this country. This, number two is then we need to formally start to deescalate the stakes of national politics. Um, you know, I really hate this formula. Now, by the way, that's an important, I want people to know, not just the tone, you're talking about the stakes of national politics. The stakes, what okay. is at stake in a national election? 
Um, and, and here's what I mean. We're used to you, you this phrase that says, um, you know, hey, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I hate that phrase. I think the truth is you only really know the important elections in hindsight. You can have a pretty good sense that you're going into something really important, but what's truly important, you'll often only know with the view, you know, the benefit of history. But here's what is actually true. Every four years, you are electing the most powerful peacetime president in the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. As Congress shrinks back, as the importance of courts grows, which the president appoints, and as the president's power and authority, whether actual or illeg- illegitimately seized, continues to grow. And so you have an increasingly, look at it this way, Charlie, you have an increasingly diverse country that's increasingly separated, that is increasingly centralized in its governance. And it's centralized in a way that thanks to the sort of the vagaries of the electoral college, that a lot, whole lot of us don't ever really cast a meaningful vote for president, mm-hmm. ever. The most powerful person in the world, and you don't ever cast a meaningful vote. I mean, you're fortunate, I guess, you might dispute it given probably the the blizzard of ads you're being subjected to. But being in Wisconsin, you're in a sure, swing sure. state. You matter. We matter, absolutely. You matter. I'm in Tennessee. I don't matter. You know, we've got 30 plus million people in California. Do they matter in the electoral sense? And that is a, think about how in in disempowering that is and f- how that builds frustration. And when the stakes get higher and higher, it builds rage. And so I think one of the key things we need to do is de-escalate because people who participate in, in a constitutional republic by voting need to understand that their votes matter. And one of the ways to make a vote matter is to push more power down to the state and local level. And I know that's a, a thing that conservatives have said for a while, um, but it that de-escalation, I think, is in becoming increasingly vital. And I have this chapter in my book where you know I'm trying to argue that this can be good for people who live in progressive communities and progressive states who want to advance progressive values. And I have a, a book that California single, I mean, a chapter, California single payer could help save America. What, what I think is fascinating is that I think that folks on the left are now suddenly much more open to this argument of federalism, you know, especially yeah. if, if, if Trump were to be reelected. Like, tell us more about this, uh, this idea of devolving power, because I think one of the shocks of the last four years has been how much the Congress has abdicated to the presidency and how much power rests in the presidency. And so, yes, we, we, we obsess about this because it's way more important than it ought to be. And I know you feel the same way that you know we are divided about the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court has become much more consequential than it ought to be. The president of the United States is much more consequential than he was ever intended to be. I want there's a phrase that you use that I also think is very, very interesting. You say that we have to flip the script on the present political narrative. We have to prioritize accommodation. What does that mean? Prioritize accommodation. Is that a way of saying basically we have to learn to live with our differences, live and let live a little bit more? (laughs) Yeah, the book is actually dedicated in part um, to James Madison because of um, my favorite Federalist paper, and it should be yours as well, Federalist (laughs) number 10. And in Federalist number 10, w- Madison is wrestling with this challenge because, you know, we think of division as new. Well, it's it's not new. I mean, like the the founding fathers had just divided from the British Empire. You know, the, there was the, the Civil War. There have been other secession threats in American history. I mean, this division and concern about division isn't new. And the founding generation wrestled with it. And he's he was talking about how do you deal with the violence of faction? And it, it's really interesting. It almost as if it previews some of the, you know, ideological wars we've had on the right, where, you know, a lot of people in the sort of more authoritarian and liberal right are arguing that we need to have less liberty, you know, and more control and more power. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and what Madison says that you can't extinguish liberty and maintain our republic, you know, and people need liberty like human beings need oxygen. Um, but what you, so what you do to deal with the violence of faction is you let many factions flourish. In other words, you allow people to have a home and a community in this land. And this was something, a concept that was very much on George Washington's mind. And almost 50 times 
in his writing, he referred to a verse from the book of Micah that actually Lin-Manuel Miranda repopularized in the Hamilton musical. And if you are a Hamilton acolyte, you write, you'll recognize this, that every man shall sit under his own vine, his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And that was his promise, Washington's promise in his letter to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island, where essentially he's saying to this most persecuted religious minority, you will have a home in this land. Now, we know the founding fathers were highly imperfect and allowing people to feel that they had a home in this land where no one could make them afraid. But part of the, the founding principles in 1776 combined with the legal power of the, and moral power of the Bill of Rights means, means that we have extended that promise more and more in our history. And we need to remember it. And, and a short way of saying it is we need to let California be California and let Tennessee be t- Tennessee. We need to respect the autonomy and liberty of atheist Americans, of religious Americans, of people of every um, you know race, creed, color, tribe, etc. And and so it's a what I love about that d- biblical verse. It's it provides a transcendent moral frame around pluralism. It's recognize the humanity of our political opponents and say to them, "You should have a home in this land, just like I have a home in this land." And the operation of law should protect that home. And to protect your sense of security in that home. And the way I argue is that's that means robust protection of the Bill of Rights for everybody. Yeah, let's talk about that. You, you talk about revitalizing the Bill of Rights. So yeah. in, in, in tangible terms, what does that actually mean? It means obviously diminishing presidential power. We've, we've, we've talked about that. Um, but, you know, what, what, how, how does this mean? I mean, more local control, less centralization? Well, so it's what revitalizing the Bill of Rights. So the federalism is connected to, but not uh, it perfectly aligned with the Bill of Rights because there's been a bad version of federalism in the past where it was a federalism of the Bill of Rights, <laughs> where right. you know if you lived in one state, you had substantially fewer rights than if you lived in another state. So I think federalism can only work in this country if you protect the Bill of Rights everywhere. But what I would say is, uh, and and this gets real concrete, Charlie. Because a lot of stuff happened after I wrote this wrote this book, and one of the things that happened after this book was finalized was George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis, and what that sh- shined a bright light on was the fact that we have failed to ma- to protect the Bill of Rights in the its application to, for example, police brutality, mm-hmm. and and it should have been in a wake up call, I think, to a lot of conservatives that we're really good when we look at the Bill of Rights at saying amendments one and two, we're all about them. You know, mm-hmm. free speech, religious liberty, right to keep and bear arms. And then amendments four through eight, not so much. <laughs> um, the third amendment, everyone's fine with, you know, mm-hmm. nobody's quartering troops anywhere. But um, amendments four through eight, you know, due process, um, you know, the the rights of representation, you know, the right not to incriminate yourself, the the you know rights against cr- freedom from cruel and unusual punishment against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, I wrote this long thing for the Dispatch a couple of months ago where I said I charted how Supreme Court precedent brought us to the Breonna Taylor situation mm-hmm. in Louisville, and how the everything from sort of the war on drugs to a lot of the the legitimate fears as a result of much higher crime rates in the late night late nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties created this system of justice that systematically violates these core constitutional rights and has disproportionately impacted, um, you know, black Americans. And you're talking about qualified immunity for police officers as part of this? Qualified immunity, uh, policing for profit, civil Mm -hmm. asset forfeiture. Um, You know, if you, if all you know about, for example, the Ferguson situation back in 2014 is that the officer was exonerated in shooting, uh, you know, uh, Michael Brown, then you don't know enough about that situation because there were two reports and one found that the officer was exonerated, properly exonerated in that shooting. The other one found that the police department had sort of systematically turned the poor citizens of that community into an ATM for the city. Mm-hmm. And that revenue generation was more important to the police department than was public safety. And 
This is not a unique problem to one police department. And so this is one of the things that contributes to alienation in the United States of America is this idea that we have constitutional liberties that are expressions of fundamental human rights that we are protecting insufficiently. And that raises the national temperature. And that's why I say Bill of Rights Republicans, which is one of my arguments for what should be the next phase after Trump. What do you replace that with? I like the phrase Bill of Rights Republicans, but Bill of Rights Americans should remember that amendments four through eight are every bit as vital and, and, you as know, those, amendments one and two. That, that's, not, that's not a departure. It should not be a departure for conservatives. It, for years, it has baffled me um, that how, how many conservative Republicans don't have a problem with, for example, civil asset forfeiture, where the police can take away your private property without actually convicting you of a crime. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that just seems on the surface to be a fundamental violation of rights, particularly if you're a conservative and you believe in property rights and theoretically in, in due process, why would you want the government, the state, to be able to come in and confiscate your stuff um, without ever having to prove that you've done anything wrong? It's always been breathtaking to me, and I feel the same way about the reluctance to get rid of qualified immunity, that I do yep. think that if that if small government, uh, you know, con conservatives actually sat down and thought, should, you know, sh you know, should the state, you know, be able to do these things to you, uh, to other to other people without being held accountable, really is, you know, th doesn't that violate what you claim to be in favor of? Yeah, you know, what we're learning, Charlie, I mean, you know, this very well, is that this conservative movement that we thought had sort of a uni unified, coherent ideology with, you know, wasn't that it was all completely unified, but it was all supposedly variations on a theme, <laughs> wasn't, qu wasn't quite that. Um, and, you know, one of the things you see sort of in the example, for example, in the president's like law and order, law and order, constant repetition, which he, which by that he often means is just take using state power to punish people he doesn't like. I mean, like the mockery of, of uh, a mockery of uh, MSNBC reporter for getting wounded in the streets when he's doing yeah, nothing wrong. Just in the last thing. Or last night he was, he was actually did a whole riff about how much he liked the fact that police were roughing up reporters. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's not law and order. That's actually lawlessness, but um, there was, there's a big strain of the sort of larger Republican coalition that, as I said, has been very focused on um, first and second amendments and not focused on the, no, is... the, um, the Bill of Rights beyond that. And a lot of that is because um, the Bill of Rights, they perceive the Bill of Rights beyond that is sort of helping criminals. Right. That's, that's what helps criminals. And we don't want to help, help criminals. And in, instead of viewing them as sort of fundamental human rights, they, a lot of Americans have sort of grown up as viewing them as illegitimate ways in which bad people get around the law. Well, and there's always been some tension there. Okay, so but I have a bunch of things I, I want to get to. I know we have limited time here. Um, I, I should have asked this question earlier, so bad, bad on me. When we were talking <laughs> about the, the, the division and secession and the way in which millions of Americans are going into this election knowing that they don't count. I have been a longtime defender of the Electoral College, but I have to admit I'm going through a serious prop, you know, process of thinking, you know, that that has contributed, that has contributed materially to this kind of division. When you have the president who clearly doesn't think of individuals as Americans, he thinks of people who live in red states versus blue states. He can write off, you know, the shithole cities like Baltimore in Maryland because Maryland doesn't count. He can toy with the idea of cutting off aid to California because California doesn't count. So you must have to grapple with um, this question of the electoral college. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, a couple, I'm, I'm still, I still believe in the counter majoritarian institutions of the constitution. Um, I think that we would have, if we de-escalate our national politics, we would have less of an, a focus on the electoral college and less of a focus on the, the dynamics of the Senate. So that's one thing. But I also realize, look, what we have right now is a perfect storm. So in the last, there's only been one Republican to win the presidency with a majority of the popular vote since 1988. Yeah, and that was once. Bush, Bush and <laughs> yeah, 04. Right. That's a sobering thing. So, but what we have right now is a, a one-two punch. So we have 
the reality that the way the country's dynamics have shifted is that Republicans might have an enduring electoral vote uh, majority, which, by the way, creates a firewall for against the repeal of the Electoral College. I mean, mm-hmm. where are you going to get the states to vote to repeal the yeah, change not, Electoral it's not College? Going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So it all the debate kind of feels a little moot. But the other thing that we have is, unlike Bush, you have a president who revels in this, who who doesn't care that. Um, what ends up happening is uh, millions upon millions of blue Americans don't just feel helpless. They feel despised. I was talking to somebody who was involved in the Bush 04 campaign and, and any campaign that focuses on the popular vote over the electoral college is committing malpractice because right. that's not how you win. But he said they were keenly aware that they did not want to repeat what happened in 2000. They wanted that popular vote victory and that electoral college victory because they thought it would be better for the country. And they're right. They're right. And you can sit here all day long and do your well actually thing on Twitter as a conservative and say, well, actually, we don't know who would win the popular vote because no one's pursuing that popular vote victory. And that's, that is to an extent correct. I think we still know who would win the popular mm-hmm. vote, but um, that doesn't comfort people in the real world who are saying, wait a minute. Trump got four million. You know, let's say this this time he wins a narrow and a narrow popular vote. I mean, electoral vote victory again. He's president. And he got four million fewer votes. Yeah. What? And and then when you combine that with also at the same time with the way the urban rural divide has become so salient in our politics, and it hasn't always been, but it has become so salient in our politics, which then creates a Senate advantage. Um, I was on a a podcast with Ezra Klein. And I said, I think if you had to boil down red and blue concerns, it would be this blue America says I am living under minoritarian government and that feels unjust. Mm -hmm. And then red concerns would say, I'm afraid of majoritarian tyranny and that would be unjust. And so how do you, how do you ameliorate both of those concerns? Um, and and I think that's one of the central challenges of our time. Well, of course, that was what uh, James Madison was trying to wrestle with, why he created a House of Representatives and a Senate, why he yes. created the, the Electoral College. Okay, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, you uh, you created some waves by proposing <laughs> a reasonable compromise um, at a moment when no one seems like they are interested in being either reasonable or compromising. You suggested that, well, why don't you, I, I, won't, I won't put words in your, your mouth. Um, what, what was what was your proposal? Yeah, my, my my proposal was simple. It was essentially to hold a lot of Republicans and some Democrats to their word as much as possible. Um, strip the situation of its pure Machiavellian power politics because that that leads to continual escalation. And do this: Trump nominates his candidate. You give the candidate hearings, something more than what Merrick Garland got in 2016. But you don't vote until after the election. And if Trump wins, then Fine. Um, you know, confirm the candidate. The controversy is over. Mm-hmm. If Trump loses, then Mitch McConnell can say to um, key Democrats, including the president elect, um, we'll vote and confirm this nominee in lame duck. But if you agree, for example, not to try to pack the court or that, you know, the, the contours of the compromise could be, you know, subject to negotiation, not to pack the Supreme Court or not to add new states or you know, wh- whatever the, that would be the principal concern at the time in exchange for that, you know, we'll drop this, the insistence of voting on this pick because what we have right now is two destabilizing potential, two potentially destabilizing raw political power plays that could unfold in the next week, few weeks and months. And one of them is Republicans violating some really clearly stated principles that they stated in just the recent past, to ram through a nominee, not right close to election, but while people are actually voting. <laughs> uh, and they did it easily, the didn't they? I mean, I, I thought that was rather interesting watching them do that flip-flop without even breaking a sweat. It's like, hey, you didn't even think we were serious, right? Oh, my gosh. And some I mean, of these, yeah. And with the cynicism was like, there was no principle. You do understand this. This is a raw power play. And they... They appear to be doing it without any embarrassment or shame whatsoever. Oh, and in fact, 
the 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 minions online are shaming and embarrassed trying to shame anyone who says hey wait a minute shouldn't you have told the truth <laughs> yeah no. exactly yeah it's, the, mean, you're naive well you got basically blasted from both sides for this right and you know, fo- folks our good friend uh, noah rothman from commentary said that your plan would reward the democrats for their bad behavior and what republicans do is call their bluff just do what they're going to do and not worry about the consequences down the line in 2021 right so yeah i mean what's the print here here is my concern yeah the 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 republicans have the constitutional power to do this no they have the power to do it um now it completely contradicts things that they said do words matter anymore or is it just power well that's one of the reasons why we're in the problem we're in charlie is because Uh, you've created this deep and abiding cynicism in the American people that words don't matter at all. And words matter so little now to Republicans that you're being shamed for bringing them up. No, as a it, promise. It, 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 we, we've been heading this way for a while. Um, there are really no norms. There are no standards. It really is. We win, you lose. And, yeah. And you bring that attitude, by the way, into the electoral process. And you can imagine where that could go terribly wrong. Oh, and, and, and so then the thing is, so the Republican assertion is we have the constitutional power, we're going to do it. And if, you know, you're not even ridiculous if you think we shouldn't. But then they turn around and say, well, if the Democrats, if they win control, use their constitutional power to do what they have the authority to do, that that's hostage taking and terrorism and et cetera, et cetera. And look, I mean, if you're talking norms, the last time a president got their guy through through a Congress that they controlled in, a, in an election year was 1940. Okay, this is not some sort of big mm-hmm. norm here. And that was a vote vacancy that opened up the year before and was filled in January of the election year. So, you know, 10 months before. This was mm-hmm. FDR at sort of the peak of his apex predator powers mm-hmm. in American electoral politics. And, and when was the last time we added a state? Two of them in 1959. So if you're going to talk norms... You know, we have a more recent norm of adding a state, you know, so a lot of this rhetoric, I just feel like, look, if your position is that it's just you, you can do what you have the power to do, just say it and hold to it. But if your position is I'm going to do what I have the power to do, but if my political opponents try to do what they have the power to do, I'm going to scream and yell about norms. It's going to be wrong. I'm just not going to take you seriously. I'm just, I, to me, it's saying norms for thee and not for me. And this is part of our whole problem. And, and, and the willingness just to switch sides on a, on a dime is, is, is kind of entertaining. This may seem like it's not on point, but, you know, over the last week, there's been a really, I thought, interesting and, and principled discussion of, okay, if Donald Trump loses, should he be criminally prosecuted? And the debate breaks down between people who go, okay, um, you could do this, but it would be, it would be imprudent. It would cause right. too much damage to the, you know, to the the body politic, to our culture. So, yes, you have the right to do it. You have the power to do it, but it would be wrong. You could see the same thing playing out that that if at a certain point the argument to prudence is regarded as, you know, cuck speak, you know, how naive <laughs> you are. And yeah. everybody basically goes, if I can do it, then I will. I will wield every cudgel and I will yield it. Without without concern for the fallout, the consequence, the damage we will cause, boy, that accelerates exactly what your book talks about. Yeah, it really does. And and look, I you know I know these are hard decisions; these are hard calls. And I, uh, in a lot of people, I I um, that I respect a great deal disagree with me. One of them being Mitt Romney, another one being my friend, you know, Ramesh Panuru. One I love Noah Rothman to death; mm-hmm. he disagrees with me. Uh, I'm not objecting to these. Uh, I'm not sitting there saying if I'm right and everyone else who's wrong, everyone else who disagrees with me is not only wrong, but bad faith wrong. What I'm objecting to really, and I think this is a hard call, but what I'm object, objecting to in a really concrete way is the very, very selective application of the norm argument mm-hmm. and the prudence argument. And w- one of the telltale signs of partisanship of sort of a, of a, of a truly, um, of a truly unhealthy form of partisanship is if it we consistently begin to reach a conclusion that 
really truthfully, norms don't apply to my side and they absolutely apply to the other side. And people get there in different ways. Some people who are true MAGA folks, they just don't care. They laugh at norm. Mm -hmm. They laugh at these arguments about norms or principles. Sure. And then some people, they, they rationalize it. They say, well, I would be upholding this norm, but the Democrats did something so bad, for right. example, mistreat Kavanaugh, that all bets are off now. And, and you see this, this kind of reasoning a lot that sort of says, well, you know, ideally I'd like to maintain a norm, but they're just so bad, or I expect that they will be so bad that I'm not going to maintain it. And that, that's, that just gets us right back to the doom loop because guess what? I mean, yeah, there are very legitimate gripes about the way that Brett Kavanaugh was treated, especially the gang rape allegation. Yes. Um, so that's a very legitimate, but you know what? Um, I'm, I think that Democrats have a quite a list of grievances about the way the current president of the United States has treated any number of Americans. It is interesting that people who say that, yes, the, the, the bad treatment of Kavanaugh radicalized them, but they weren't radicalized by uh, Donald Trump's treatment of, you know, make the list of all the people that, that, that he has trashed and the things that he has done. It requires you to be very selective, that you have to create a frame, right? You create a frame that allows you to ignore everything outside of this, that we're just going to look at this narrow issue and we're going to put the rest, we're going to hit the mute button on everything else that's happening in American politics. Yeah, it's like I'm looking at the judicial nomination and confirmation wars with blinders, and it says the only relevant moral considerations about treatment apply to specific judicial nominations and the treatment of those nominees when that's not American politics. You know, when you have a situation where Democrats, for example, are deeply aggrieved uh, and and decent Americans are deeply grieved by the way that Donald Trump has treated any number of people, including gold star parents. I mean, you know, like I don't believe that Brett Kavanaugh deserved in any way, shape or form the kind of awful treatment that he received. But I'll tell you one thing. I also know that the gold star family from the 2016 presidential election did not deserve in any way, shape or form the kind of abuse the president of the United States heaped upon them or the president, the candidate heaped upon them. And I saw in that circumstance, Republicans online essentially saying, well, they waded into the arena. They, they got into the arena as if somehow if by getting into the arena and opposing Donald Trump means you get what you, you, you know, whatever you get is what's coming to you. Yeah. He's, he's, and, the, he's, he's the puncher. He'll punch back. So yes, if, if, uh, if that means punching back at the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg or implying there's a conspiracy theory or mocking disabled reporters, uh, that's all fair game. David French, thank you so much for being so generous with your time because I know you are very much in demand with this new book. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for having me. I really, I really appreciate it, and uh, and it's been a fun conversation. Thanks, Charlie. Well, well, the book is "Divided We Fall: America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation," which is an immensely important book for going forward, trying to figure out what happens next, where are we going to go, how do we fix this. So, thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again. There are just 41 days until Election Day.